Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset NHS Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And today we're talking about long COVID in children, and we're really delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Bridges, who's a consultant paediatrician from Somerset for many years. Um, And Sarah, tell us about yourself, please. I don't know where to start, but um, many of you will know my name. I'm a general paediatrician at Musgrove Park. I've done various roles in my in my lifetime there. I've been there about 20 to 30 years now. Um, um, and early on in my career, I took on looking after the young people with um, medical explained symptoms, chronic fatigue syndrome. And that's evolved more recently into taking on long COVID. How fascinating. And so just as a bit of background, do you want to give us a framework for dealing with chronic fatigue before we move on to the differences between that and long COVID or indeed the similarities? Because you've obviously got a wealth of experience in the condition. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there there's more similarities and differences. So I think if we talk about what long COVID is and how we manage it, it's it's going to be identical really to how we manage our young people with chronic fatigue. So I think it'll be useful for all those groups of children. And Sarah, I'm uh, aware that in talking about that, you're talking about the, the tiredness that comes with almost everybody who's had uh, COVID in the first wave. Um, but there's a whole host of other long COVID things, aren't there, that's different from chronic fatigue. So heart problems, lung problems, um, brain problems, all, all kinds of things. Do you want to tell us a little bit of, about the wider things that people can get after COVID? I mean, first of all, just to think about the definition of long COVID, you've got your acute COVID symptoms, which last in most people, you know, two to three weeks. Then you might have post-COVID symptoms, which go on for up beyond five weeks. And then the sort of agreed definition, although there's not complete consensus on this, is if you've got persistent symptoms for more than 12 weeks after a probable diagnosis of COVID, it's not attributed to anything else, then we call it long COVID. Of course, there's so much wooliness in that definition, and it's changed so much from the beginning where we were initially not swabbing anyone and then swabbing everyone and now not swabbing anyone again. We often don't know whether someone's actually had a diagnosis of COVID. And now people are getting their second and third doses of COVID. How does that how does that change our sort of definition? It, it, it's hard to know. Um but of course, this the, the definition has evolved and changed over time. But currently, we're using 12 weeks of symptoms after a probable um, dose of COVID um, with young people who didn't have symptoms before that time. And of course, COVID isn't the first virus that gives long lasting tiredness, is it? Uh, glandular fever is the other classic one that can go on felling people for six months or a year. Do you think that there's a link? I think any virus can cause that. And um, I mean, long COVID, we're now learning more and more that there's sort of clusters of symptoms or clusters of, of groups. So there's there's four main groups which are proposed. There's the one group of patients who have um, persistent um, organ damage or deconditioning after an intensive care admission for long COVID. And that's much more common in, in the adult population. In our childhood population, they didn't have such severe COVID. Although I've definitely seen, I've have one or two patients who've been on ITU and have got deconditioning type symptoms. They tend to be patients who had pre-existing illnesses, so 
uh, little lad with Down syndrome who already, you know, was neuro- neurologically a little bit floppy, not as, not quite as good like immune function. And he was on PICU and ended up having longer term symptoms. The next group is a group of um, people who get persistent organ type symptoms related to the long COVID. And I think you were alluding to that earlier. So symptoms of shortness of breath or symptoms of of heart failure or gastro symptoms. And these are more common in our paediatric group and the paediatric group that have had the PIMS TS type of COVID, so the inflammatory type type illness they're more likely to go on to get specific um, organ damage that I can talk about in more detail but again still quite rare so in my population in the last year I've seen 80 patients and probably had two that fall within within that group much more commonly is the post viral fatigue group which we I know we're going to go on to talk about a bit more and probably as you say like the EBV virus like many viruses COVID probably just is the initial trigger to a chronic fatigue type response and then the final group of patients is though that those patients that have got um, fluctuating sort of migratory symptoms medically unexplained symptoms um, and this group of patients may have presented to me beforehand, actually, without before we knew about COVID, um, and they're just bust, they're just linking it now to their their COVID um, experience. But also, these young people have been fed for two years pictures of people dying on ventilators, death rates every every day being published in the media and the news. So how they think about their illness and their health beliefs is very different and has affected the, the, the way that they've coped with their symptoms now. Before we go on, can I just ask you to unpack a couple of acronyms that you threw in there? So PICU, PIMS and EBV. We know what it is, but our listeners may not. We are ridiculous, aren't we, as using acronyms. So PICU, Paediatric Intensive Care Unit. Um, um, PIMS is the the polyinflammatory form of of COVID. So when we're in the midst of COVID, you'll be aware of the information that came out about young people who had like Kawasaki type symptoms. So inflammation um, in multiple areas of their body, high ferritin levels. Um, they, those children were requiring um, steroids to in order to manage their um and inotropes in order to manage their, their blood pressure. And then the other acronym, EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, they are glad the cause of glandular fever. And in unpacking those very helpfully for us, you've, you've used inotrope, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> polyinflammatory, and uh, a couple of other uh, medical terms. Could you, could you unpack those as well, please? Sure. So um, inotropes is, um, they're drugs that help with your blood pressure, help maintain your blood pressure. So in young people who had inflammation in their body as part of their COVID illness, that you get inflammation in your heart that affects your blood pressure and you need inotropes medicines to help manage that blood pressure. Um, so what was the other thing you asked? Polyinflammatory. Polyinflammatory. Basically it's posh where poly, lots of inflammatory inflammation in different in different systems in your body. And can I just at this point say for those of our listeners who may have 
long ago studied Latin and Greek, perhaps you understand that the whole of medicine is a conspiracy against the layman by dressing up English in Latin and Greek to make it incomprehensible. There is something about the precision of wording, but there is also something about the poshness, as you say, Sarah, of, of giving it giving it a, an, <laughs> another name. Um, and we, we could, we've talked on other occasions why that may, might be, but, uh, but thank you very much for helping us unpack it into common sense English. Um, so they're the four main types. Um, the management of them varies depending on the sorts of symptoms that the young people are experiencing. Um, in medicine, we're very used to the sort of old style, um, sort of what we call biomedical model, which um, people are used to used to experiencing with their doctors where you go your doctor takes a history they check you over from top to toe they might do some investigation um, come up with a diagnosis and then a management plan we're aware for a lot of young people with long covid that sort of style of medicine wasn't really helping because there's no actual treatment for long covid we know everyone gets better from it or people do get better from it um but actually that sort of model it, it puts the patient expecting a specific treatment, which wasn't something that we could provide. So instead of a hardware body biomedical model, solve it, here's the solution, you're suggesting yeah. that there's a bigger picture. So we, try, so we approach it from a sort of psychosocial sort of standpoint. For lots of people, when they have had persistent symptoms, they do still need to see a doctor. They need, we need to rule out all the other causes of the symptoms they're experiencing. And so we use the, the NICE guidance, so the National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidance on what investigations to carry out to rule out other causes before we move on to the sort of psychosocial model. And just to clarify, by using this other model, you're not saying that people's symptoms are in their imagination if those other tests are negative, are you? No, these, these are real symptoms. They're real, significant, disabling symptoms that people are experiencing. It's simply that we can't use a medicine to get them completely better from it. We need to use a different approach. And I'm really glad you clarified that because some people say they feel they've been gaslighted uh, by medical professionals and, and sort of told it's all in the mind. And I think it's really important to make that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of my clinic is about giving the family and the young person the reassurance that this is a real symptom. It doesn't matter that we can't find necessarily find a cause for it. It's a real symptom and we'll help them manage that symptom. And the, the sort of pattern that we use in clinic is run the symptom being in control of the patient. We put the patient in control of the symptom and we look at how we manage things in that way. Having excluded a serious cause such as a SATs being 65 or something like that. And how does that work in practice, Sarah? How does that work in practice? Um, so, so it's quite a long clinic appointment, the first clinic appointment, because not only do you, you have to go through the biomedical model to rule out everything else, first of all. So we do do the history. We do do the investigation. We do do the examination. But a big part of that is actually getting to know the patient and the family and developing a relationship with that family to understand how their disability or symptom is affecting them, what they, what they can and can't do because of that and what they wish they could do. So a lot of that initial appointment is not only 
gathering the information to rule out other causes, but it's understanding them as a person and how we're going to work on this for the future. So once we've ruled out all the other causes, we really look at um, function and disability for young people in four main groups. It's how they're managing at school, whether they're in school at all, how long they're in school for, how they're keeping up with their lessons, all that sort of stuff. It's about their social energy. So are they still, have they still got contact with other young people their own age? A lot of our young people have become really isolated, not just because of isolation, but because they're sat at home, not able to go to school or all the rest of it. So that is um, the, the social energy, the school energy, the physical energy. So that's how able are they to do sports, go up and down stairs, go walk the dog, all that sort of thing. And the final thing is mental energy. So for a lot of young people, there's a significant emotional health effect of what we've seen with long COVID, which cause, which does drain your energy battery and affect all the other areas. So it's those four more main areas that we, we concentrate on. And I'm interested in your comment about mental energy. In adults, brain fog is a really common long COVID symptom, isn't it? Is that something that children experience as well? Absolutely. They very clearly describe brain fog. It's um, And we see that um, often when their energy battery is empty, is empty, they're just not able to think as clearly. The processing is, is slower. Um, it takes much longer to, for things to, to, to go in. Um, and you see that in school and parents support that when they're asking their young person to get their sports bag ready or something. They can't work out what it is they need to put in their bag. It's that sort of level, level of processing. Um, and so it's all about pacing teaching people to pace their energy management so they've still got energy for that mental functioning to be able to do that sort of thing so without your mental functioning you're really scuppered in both social physical school you know everything else Terry, you mentioned the phrase mental battery and i wonder if we could bring a little bit of biology in in here what do you understand about the mitochondria the little batteries in the cell and, and do they have any relevance to this is this part of what's happening it's it's hard to know. I mean, there's been lots of research and and theories about this. We know that I talk about energy battery really when I'm talking about pacing with, with families. I explain that we've all got an energy battery. And if that energy battery goes flat, you start experiencing physical symptoms. And it's about how you manage your energy in the day so that you've got some time off in the day to refill your energy battery or recognize when you are getting flat so you can pace yourself so it doesn't get absolutely flat. I also go on to explain that if your energy battery is flat, bizarrely, you can't get the refreshing sleep you need to refill your energy battery. A bit like an overtired toddler. If you put an overtired toddler to bed, they'll toss and turn and won't, won't, go, won't go to sleep. You need to have energy in your battery at the end of the day to actually go into that deep sleep that refills that energy battery so that the next morning you get up and have more energy. Whether that's related to the cellular element, the mitochondria or something else, I don't know. I really use it as an analogy to talk about pacing. That's 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 really helpful. And I would certainly say the the phenomenal power of sleep as a restorative, particularly hours before midnight. But just recapping on what you're saying, energy battery. Um, I, I had mumps as a junior doctor in my mid-20s, and it, uh, it really knackered the energy batteries for several months. And it, it took... Yeah. It took two or three years to be fully recharged, and I, that's an identifiable virus, uh, identifiable virus, mumps, uh, caught it doing paediatrics, you know, um, <laughs> on the ward. 
um, the consultant said, oh, interesting case of cervical adenitis. And 17 days later, I went down with mumps. So I don't think it was cervical adenitis on this little <laughs> child. But, uh, but I would certainly attest uh, for the, the long tail of, of a viral illness as an adult. Uh, and we've mentioned briefly earlier Epstein-Var, the, um, the um, infectious mononucleosis glandular fever. Um, and I think, Peter, you may know a little bit about long COVID on a personal basis in, in adults. Absolutely, yes. We've we've talked about this before, haven't we, Andrew? And I've given talks specifically about uh, the effects of COVID on the brain. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that, that children are similarly affected because uh, when it first hit, children, of course, weren't dying in the way that adults were. Uh, so, but they do seem pretty vulnerable to long COVID, don't they? I'd be interested in your views on uh, whether children are, are getting the same problem with the Omicron strains if they've been vaccinated, whether it's worse if they're having a second attack of COVID, as, as some people are experiencing. What's your feeling about the, the general prevalence of long COVID in children and the, the things that affect it? It's it's really uncertain. I mean, we are gathering all the data, and, and it's notified the minute we gather it and, and put it to our tertiary team who submit it to the national database. So hopefully, there'll be more information on it. And um, there's a lot of information on the Twitter sphere about how common it is and how severely um, young people are are affected. Um, at the minute, um, for Somerset, we it's. It's not too bad. Um, we are seeing, so as an example, I will see about five children a month with long COVID, which is probably double what we'd see previously for young people with chronic fatigue or, or functional symptoms. Um, whether the different strains have different effects, I don't know the answer to that. That there's certainly some effect if you've had long COVID, and I don't know whether you've experienced this yourself, Peter, and you get a further dose of COVID, there's certainly a fact that people's symptoms seem to flare up at that point, whether that's because it's just a virus and like even young people with chronic fatigue syndrome, if they get a virus, that virus will empty their energy battery. So they're more likely to get physical symptoms or whether it's a COVID specific thing is really difficult to unpack. We generally, when I see the patients, I do explain that when they get a virus, they will have a flare of symptoms and they will need to step back on their pacing plan for a week or two before they then carry on. Because otherwise what happens is they get terrified, they're going to go all the way back to, to, to stage one and they get really scared about going to school and carrying on with the pacing plans. We do try and anticipate those flares and give them a plan for managing them. Yes, and absolutely. I've seen professionally people who, who, when they've had a second, uh, e even if they've been vaccinated and they're getting Omicron where you wouldn't expect it to be so bad, uh, they can get a flare up of symptoms. And, and even sometimes I, I had one patient who had really bad uh, brain fog with their first episode. And then the second time they got inflammation in their abdomen and abdominal swelling. So it, it's really weird. And we're, we're still, the science is still evolving, isn't it? Um, uh, do you think yeah, we're able to say yet who is likely to recover from this? What the what the long term outlook is for people? So the long term outlook in young people, see the data coming out seems to be much more optimistic than um, it's going to sound rude than the older people who get long COVID. Um, so, for instance, they don't young people don't get such specific um, organ damage unless they've had the inflammation inflammation form, the inflammatory form of, of COVID. 
um, and even those seem to generally get better with time. Everyone who, who we've seen with long COVID has got complete, with the chronic fatigue type long COVID, has got completely better. You'll be aware there's been the biggest studies in, in long COVID in children are coming from Denmark because they started off doing the studies really, the epidemiological studies, like looking at who was getting it and how long they were getting it for, what symptoms they were getting. They started right at the beginning and they are quoting that the average length of time that a young person has long COVID for is five months. Um, for many of my patients, they, they still have impairment for longer than five months because it takes, although you may have long COVID for five months, you're then deconditioned and need to get back into school and start you know, rehabilitating, getting used to doing all the normal things. Um, but everyone is is getting better. So there's a sort of, you know, I'm I'm in my sixties and I've grown up with the wonders of antibiotics and being part of a generation of doctors who've been privileged to prescribe antibiotics so that people with all sorts of bacterial infections get better quickly. Um, a um, hundred years ago, if you got a rose thorn in your finger, you might get septicemia and be dead in a, in a week's time. Um, whereas we know now that antibiotics help us greatly. And, and there's sort of something about the quick, almost the quick fix in the public mind, not in the public mind, but we've been lulled into a sense of security that antibiotics will cure it. And I always remember saying that if, if people would come to me and, oh, doctor, I want some antibiotics to make me better, I would always say, so I'm talking about bacterial infections. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about I'm not talking about viral infections. I would always say antibiotics do not make you better. Antibiotics kill bacteria. Your immune system makes you better. You can nurture your immune system with rest, with um, fresh fruit, with veg vegetables, with you know, with, with with a whole load of healthy ways to nurture your body. Uh, and there is something called the lost art of convalescence. Because so many of us are, are impatient, and we we want our back, we want our antibiotics, so we can go straight back to work. And it, and it's quite a hard task to sell that idea. Is that some of the sort of um, thought form, some of the the approach that that you find that you're 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 paralleling? And and is it easy to sell that, or or are people frustrated and they would like a tablet to make it better, or? No, you're quite right. Everyone would love a tablet to make it better. And I mean, the evidence is when you're managing things in the sort of psychosocial way, people need, need to hear the story about nine times before they buy into it. So a lot of the, my time is spent discussing it, emailing on the phone, whatever, giving, working with the school is, is also really important so that everyone has got the, the same approach. Um, but everyone, as you say, would love a tablet and it takes a little while to explain that, no, that's not, that's not going to get you better from this. There's also this urgency that people feel that they're going to miss out on something if, if they don't get better now. What if I don't get my 10 GCSEs? What if I don't get this or that? And, you know, our school assessments and education system has set people up to feel that way. But people are much more flexible now within education and it's getting people to buy into the fact that actually you only need five core GCSEs to move on to college. Don't push yourself to try and get 12 A-stars. There's, there's, no, there's not that need. But often explaining that, people are shocked and horrified that you're actually saying, saying that, but it's getting people just to understand that it'll all be okay in the long term, but you've got to listen to your body and, and, and go with your body and, and pace it. Otherwise, you get people booming and busting and just not getting better at all. And I guess the upside to what you were saying, Andrew, about uh, 
people wanting a, a, a pill for every ill is that although there may not be in COVID as, as in lots of other conditions, our bodies do have a, an enormous ability to self-recover, don't they, and self-heal. So it's part of what you're doing, Sarah, trying to set the scene so that people allow their bodies to recover naturally by not pushing themselves too far physically or emotionally indeed. Yeah, absolutely. It's that holistic approach, isn't it? Is that, is that you're not, you're a whole body, you're a whole person. It's not just the health of it. It's all the other stuff all around you. You need to take take into account. Interesting. It's quite fascinating, is it? Isn't it? I suppose, you know, looking on the bright side, if there is a bright side of any illness, illness for many of us is a teacher. It gives us a new perspective and it makes us look at things anew have you any particular stories of of hope to share with us there where people have bought into the biopsychosocial model or uh, and have found some some help i mean i think everyone you you have to buy into it in the end it's the only way you're going to going to get better from it it's just that some people buy in it quicker than others in all honesty and who's to blame you know we're to blame with the medical professionals we we put out so much about sort of biomedical stuff that actually someone saying something from a different it does take a while to trust and agree and buy into that way of managing it but as I say all the young people I've met and and to be fair the young people buy into it quicker than the parents in all honesty um, because these parents are, are, you know, they've seen their very functional um, teenager who's doing really well at school and all the sports clubs doing this, suddenly in bed at home, not able to do anything. It's it's terrifying. And then you see on the news all the people dying from COVID and all this sort of stuff. And you're as a parent, it's 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 really hard. And we live a fast-paced life, as you say, where you expect to get a diagnosis, get the treatment, and move on. And we've had to. COVID has ha- has made us stop and think and go hang on a minute you know what what is important here and for that and to feel comfortable with that pause is really hard for a lot of people and again trying to take positives out of what's been a a really difficult time for so many of us um, maybe that reflection getting off the hamster wheel thinking about the important priorities of life and, and what we should put our energy to maybe there's some value in that do you think I definitely think that's the case. I mean, you you hear time and again the new skills people have learned, career differences, different paths people have taken, um, even things like, you know, the NHS crisis of staffing. People are thinking, well, actually, you know, what do I want to do? What is important? What do I what what do I want to get out of this? Um, but I think it's uh, I. You have to, I mean, it's, it's a bit stoic philosophy, this, isn't it? But if something's happened, you can either feel really sad and upset and distraught by how it's affected our, our young people, our adults, our community. Or you can go, hang on a minute, it's happened. I can't change that. What I can do is change what I think about it and how I manage the future and my plans for the future. I'm so glad to hear wise advice there, Sarah, about how our thoughts affect us. Uh, and that could bring us into a point of departure about CBT and a whole load of other approaches. But society, and particularly anybody who's become ill or who's lost a loved one or who's been bereaved from their hopes and dreams, let alone having lost a job or a house or, or any of those dreadful things, we, but we, we're all going through change. We're all going through bereavement. We're all going through loss. And so ha- that loss is happening. What matters is how we manage that loss. And so 
I, I can imagine that if I was a, a parent bringing my child to you, I would be very reassured by your explanations and your comforting, supportive voice, because we all want to feel safe and we all want to feel supported, even if even if the news isn't quite what we wanted to hear. I, I think you're right. I think you hit them ahead with bereavement of hopes and dreams, because that is they come the young people come presenting with you know chronic fatigue and symptoms but actually the effect it's had is that they've thought oh no I'm not going to get my GCSEs I'm not going to be able to do coding at college I'm not going to be able to do this or that um and and then they've like their their head has spun out of control and so a lot of my clinic is spent doing actually all those hopes and dreams are the same as they were before and you will be able to do those and it's making people comfortable with a pause and then carrying on as as, as they were Um, and yeah a lot of it is just the reassurance that they will get back to normal but they need to listen to their body now and just pause. And I'd like to thank you for ending with a message that's relevant not just to people living with long Covid but living with any illness and just living actually the the things that you said are relevant to all of us aren't they? They Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Dr. Sarah Bridges, thank you so much for joining us today for a talk about long COVID in children. But I think we've gone a little bit wider than that. And I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to it. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Peter. Until next time. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.